Welcome to the Research Ops podcast, an initiative of the Research Ops community. I'm your host for today, Bridget Metzler, and one of the co-chairs of this huge volunteer-run community. As always, I'm assuming if you're listening, then you might know a little bit about Research Ops, the mechanisms and processes that set user research in motion. If you'd like to know more about Research Ops, you can find us at our website at researchops.community or follow us on Medium, now in English and Portuguese. Follow us on Twitter at Team Reops and join in the hashtag at ResearchOps. Today's podcast is an interview with one of the ResearchOps community's directors, Brad Arego. What Brad and I have in common is that we both have passions outside of ResearchOps. While mine is gender equality for my PhD studies, Brad's is dance. Together, we explore how looking through the lens of dance changes a research practice and how dance can help us advance in research. Listen now as Brad and I have our long and I hope interesting chat. Thanks for joining me, Brad. I appreciate yep. it. Uh, really appreciate it. So today we've got uh, Brad Orego. Is that, how do I say your last name? I've never even asked you. Yeah, it's technically Origo with a long E, okay. Uh, okay. Italian in origin, but I'm not particular. Okay, okay. Thank you. So we've got Brad Origo from the Cheese Board, um, from the Research Ops community, joining me today for a bit of a chat. Uh, we're going to cover all kinds of um, things. It's a very meandering chat. I'm hoping that we might um, learn a little bit about Research Ops, learn a little bit about um, research, and uh, mostly learn something about Brad. So we'll get started, Brad. Thank you so much for um, for joining me. So first of all, would you mind telling me just a little bit about you? I sort of know sure. you, but I don't know you. So. Yeah. Um, so I uh, was born, I sort of grew up in Buffalo, New York, uh, in the United States. Um, after sort of you know, graduating from high school, um, I went to the University of Rochester where I got a BS in computer science and a BA in psychology. And when people, you know, ask the question of like, how did you get into UX? Like, you know, how did you, where, does, where did you start your career? I actually have to go back to when I was choosing a college because I decided at some point, you know, I was 17 years old that I wanted to study computer science because I wanted to make video games and I wanted to study psychology because I wanted to understand people. Um, and Rochester is one of the only universities that I talked to that said, you can come here and study both of those things. Wow. Most, most schools said, well, yeah, you're going to have to pick the engineering school or, you know, the mm. social science school of arts and sciences, whatever it may be. And Rochester was like, no, 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 come here, double major. It's totally cool. People do it all the time. Um, so I you know, went to Rochester and was sort of studying the two things in parallel independently uh, until we had an adjunct professor during my third year. Uh, sort of come in and teach an intro to human computer interaction course and that to me I was just like I read the description and I you know saw the title and I was like human computer interact what mm -hmm. is this and why has nobody told me about it um, and it just like fundamentally changed my you know entire life and my career trajectory because I had no idea you know what was human-centered design what was research in the context of you know technology and in, in the context of software um, I was doing a lot of research, both in computer science and in psychology. So I worked with um, Professor Andrew Elliott and the Approach Avoidance Motivation Group, I think is what 
his lab is called. So I was doing this okay. like high quality uh, academic research in psychology and had all of that training and was in the honors program and all of that, but just mm. had no, hadn't even thought to apply that to the world of, you know, the sort of tech industry. Um, so that really opened my eyes. Um, and I think so just like fundamentally shifted, you know, I was going to go and sort of be an AI engineer, right? I was like, okay, oh, yeah. I can write code and I can sort of do some mental model stuff. So I'll just go into AI. That's a cool new thing. <laughs> uh, and, you know, quickly, quickly changed my mind on that and, you know, really fell into the world of, of UX. Um, so that, I guess that was, what is it, 2020 now. So I graduated in um, 2011, uh, moved out to Madison, Wisconsin, and spent about six years there working with a bunch of different startups, a few agencies, doing some freelance work, like had a, a pretty much a crash course in like, this is how you do UX. Uh, a lot of my career, I was the first sort of, you know, UX design, UX research person that these companies had hired, and they would you know, hire me and they, you know, I would say, okay, cool. What do you want me to do? And they said, you're the UX guy, figure it out. <laughs> like somebody said, we needed a UX person, go do UXy things. Um, so I, I got to learn very quickly, like what works well and what doesn't work well. And, you know, the, the non-technical side of what it is to work in, you know, human-centered design, you know, how you have to know how to communicate. You have to know how to understand uh, and sort of strategize around what are the needs that your, you know, teams, your colleagues, whatever, you know, they're just saying, we, we, you know, we have, we have questions, we need you to help us with this, but they typically can't articulate hmm. uh, particularly well, you know, what that is. So I spent a lot of my early career doing that. Um, moved to New York, I guess, a little over two years ago, um, and really sort of transitioned, and that's, it started a few years before, but really transitioned away from doing some of the design work and focusing on research. Um, it's always sort of been my, my first love in that sense that, you know, design is an activity and exercise of problem solving and of creation. And research to me is about, you know, discovery and, and uncovering these insights and sharing those. And that to me is much more interesting. And it's also what I've seen uh, in my experience that people, like, I think the design practice a little bit more mature than research is. And there are a lot of people that don't have an academic background in human subjects research that are doing research in, you know, the tech industry, especially in the US. Um, and there's, there's a lack of rigor, there's a lack of structure. Uh, a lot of times it's, someone says, you know, you're doing design work, we need someone to do research, and they just kind of throw you in the deep end. Um, and people don't, you know, there isn't a lot of structure, there isn't, there isn't a good curriculum even at this point which I think yeah. is what really drew me to, you know, the research across community at first and to, you know, accepting the position to work on the board is that, you know, how can we start to support and how can we start to build out, you know, what is this curriculum? What are you expected? What are the different methods you want to use? And how do you sort of, how can we build templates for people to get them all up to speed and get them, you know, doing better research faster? So coming back to, all the way back to the university, so that was the, f the first time that they had done it. Um, how do you think, like, did other people, did other people sort of pick that up as well? And, and was it, how, how was um, that as a first run thing? Was it uh, a sort yeah. of a, a, a moment of ex exploration for the teachers as well, do you think? It, it was. Um, I... 
so what happened the year after that, they actually opened up uh, a faculty position for HCI. Right. So I was the only undergrad part of the selection committee because I basically walked into our chair's office and said, I'm do like, you have to let me do this because this has such a, like the future it of my such career a draw for you. It's on this hire. And I, I'm like, we need to have somebody that's willing to work with undergrads that knows how to teach at this level. Like we, we can't hire somebody that's, you know, so I, uh, I got to be part of that selection committee, which was super cool. And that, mm. you know, every professor that they, they, you know, they did their search and whatnot when they invited people in to give a and got to give my feedback. So we, the university in 20, uh, I think it was 2010, hired Jeffrey Bigum. He was at the University of Washington and he came to Rochester after he finished his PhD to start uh, an HCI lab at the university. He's now moved on to Carnegie Mellon. Um, Esan Hoke has taken over for, for Jeff, but yeah, so we like- we, They now have a whole lab and all of that stuff. They, they have a lab, they have a few courses in HCI. Um, what I'm doing now as an alum is working with uh, the Digital Media Studies program and with the Career Center to essentially build a minor in, you know, like user experience research and design. Because what I found is that there are a lot of students that are studying anthropology, studying sociology, psychology, these types of, you know, social sciences where you'll do research on humans mm. but none of those people and none of their advisors or, or any one of their faculty members are saying you should consider a career in technology right so we want to sort of build this bridge and build the scaffold to get these social science majors with the research skills give them a little bit of training a little bit of context of how to apply those mm. to a digital product and then have the career center and have those relationships set up so that we can Get more because like I would much rather hire somebody that studied psychology and mm -hmm. teach them how to work in tech than hire an engineer that understands the tech and try mm -hmm. to teach them how to do all the research stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had a conversation with one of my supervisors on the weekend actually, um, and because we don't see each other very often, we're in a different state, and and she said, "Oh, use research. That's just market research, right?" <laughs> oh no no it's very it's a very broad field she said but it's not really research because it's not led by the researcher it's led by what the company wants and so therefore it's not proper research hmm. so i thought that was it's a nice interesting little line there that i hadn't heard before so she's from sociology so it was interesting um so so did you find that beautiful um sort of nexus point as it was um between sort of technology and humans that really brought it all together for you yeah yeah i think that was i mean it's really interesting right like i i could have just as well gone into being a research psychologist right i could have mm. gone and gotten a phd worked in a lab like i could have done all of that um and i for a while even my you know, first few years out of college thought, well, I'll do this for a few years, I'll get some experience and then I'll go get a PhD and I'll teach. Because really what I want to do is I want more people to be doing this type of like UXE work, right? I want you know, every single engineer, every single you know, product manager, everyone, I want everyone to understand 
what is it like to sort of put yourself in you know the user's mindset put yourself in their shoes how do you empathize how do you understand you know the way that they may go about you know trying to use your software uh so i my yeah i was like i'm gonna be a professor i'm gonna like teach every you know computer science major make them take an hci course and then i realized that you can still teach and you can still have this type of impact and arguably you're gonna have a broader impact if you're not in academia because mm. then you have like the pool of people that you can influence and you can be exposed to is so much broader mm. so just on that um oh, i was just thinking a question for you there i can't remember what, what it was um so oh no it's gone i'll have to come back to it <laughs> so tell me um tell me about dance is yeah that okay? you want to have that conversation i'm, I'm curious totally. Uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah like this whole other facet to your life um, <laughs> <laughs> how did yeah. you how did you how long have you been dancing for so I started dancing in undergrad as well um you know grew up playing sports and training martial arts was always a very uh, active individual but had never taken a dance class you know it wasn't something that I ever really even thought about you know it's not that I wanted to and my parents wouldn't let me like they they actually love the fact that I have a dance career now they're super supportive um but I yeah, I was freshman year of, of undergrad. I was at our, you know, student activities fair, looking at all the different groups and, you know, said, you know, no, I'm done with sports. I played a bunch of sports and kept walking. And I was like, oh, martial arts. Yeah, I've done that. And I got to the section where the dance groups are. And I was like, well, I've never taken a dance class. This could be really interesting. Um, so I, I walk up to one table and I was like this close to joining <laughs> the belly dance group because I thought as an 18 year old, I was like, this would be really dumb. This would be like a stupid thing to do. And it would probably be funny. Couldn't quite muster the courage to sign up for that. Although I did join sort of later in my career. Uh, but I signed up for a ballroom dance because I thought, you know, this it seems like a useful life skill. You know, it's sort of a, a cool thing to know. Uh, and I went to the first few lessons and it turned out to be much more difficult than I thought. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm an athlete. I'm, you know, I'm a black belt. I'll be fine. And the first thing that we make our students do at Rochester, because we start with Viennese waltz, which is a very difficult uh, dance form. Um, and what you have to do when you're learning the waltz is you have to learn how to like hold your frame. Mm. So we would literally, as we're teaching people the basic steps, we just make them hold this, this, you know, it's like ballroom dance frame for like 45 minutes. Because if you're Ow. dancing, you have to be able to, you know, hold this sort of frame. And if you if you're not used to like if you don't know how to do that, like after like three minutes, you're like, <laughs> eh, my arms hurt. <laughs> um, so like it was physically demanding. The you know coordination and all that was was challenging. Uh, and there were a lot of women around. Yeah. So I thought I'm gonna keep doing this right. Like, and it, the rest of my career has been it's been this sort of serendipitous snowball effect where I started with ballroom, then I sort of joined the hip hop group and I had friends that were, you know, taking uh, dance classes through university. So I said, sure, I'll tag along to some of those. I eventually joined the ballet group uh, on campus and started doing like outside work at studios, did an independent study with uh, the chair of the dance department's company, uh, wound up getting the first minor in dance from the University of Rochester. Um, out to Madison and said I'll keep dancing and 
joined a company out there that was more for fun and sort of realized I wanted something more, joined another company there, uh, Canopy Dance, which I happened to be, you know, wearing the hoodie and all that. Uh, and Canopy, I had no idea what I was getting into, right? I was just like, it's another company. Cool. Let's go, you know, let's go sign up and audition and all that. And Canopy is this like national caliber modern dance company. Um, the director was in the Martha Graham Dance Company here in New York City in the late 80s and early 90s, um, you know, toured internationally, like really, really high uh, caliber and high quality uh, as a teacher, as a performer, as an artist. Um, and I just like had no idea that this company that I was going to join then would really lead me into this you know, professional career that I have now. Mm. Um, it's really, it's pretty incredible. So, part so of how, does, I, how does, how does research make you a better dancer? Do you think? That's an interesting question. Uh, I think, well, I think there's a few things and it's something I've been thinking about a lot of like what makes somebody a good performer, what makes somebody a good dancer. Um, and I think what it is, is that you have to, there's a few things. You have to be sort of willing and able to put like your entire sense of self and your entire ego aside to be able to do, you know, whatever the piece and the rules asking you to do. Um, so you have to really, really embody that character, that idea, that whatever it may be. Um, so I think, I think as a researcher, like the ability to, you know, if you're in a research session or if you're observing something, you really kind of put all of yourself to the side so you can focus solely on what you're doing. Um, you know, obviously as researchers are sort of, we're made, we're like built for empathy and to be able to understand different people's worldviews and how they sort of think about things. Um, I think that's been particularly useful. Um, and it's up until probably about a year ago, I really didn't think about like tech and dance and re like I, I kept these not intentionally separate, but I just never thought of ways to combine them. Uh, and I was at the service design jam here in New York City as a mentor and talking to one of the organizers, Tim Gilligan, who works at Capital One um, as a design practice manager, or chief of staff or whatever his title is. And he, so his training is he went to uh, NYU for theater. So he spent the first 10 years of his career as a producer, as an actor, like doing sort of, you know, shows here in New York. Um, and he, so he learning when I was, you know, when he learned I was a dancer, he kind of said, well, how do you sort of bring these two worlds together? Mm. And I was like, well, I kind of don't. Uh -huh. uh, but he and I started chatting more and now we are slowly but surely uh, working on launching a podcast to sort of explore the intersection of performing arts uh, and sort of tech and design and mm. you know, this human centered world that we both straddle both of. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I started um, when I was a, a child. I studied um, acting for a long, long time. So I don't know. I think something there's something in it. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so it's, when you're talking about uh, rigor, and I know you know you and I have known each other for a little while now, and and yeah, I know you've talked about that quite a bit over the past couple of years, and. Um, and also talking about the fact that, you know, you want everyone to be doing research. Um, 
let's talk about the that tension in you know the democratization of research and how you hold those two things um how does that work for you do you think or what's your perception of um the democratization of research yeah i think uh i mean it's a, it's an interesting question on one hand for me like if there are people that want to do research i think we should do everything we can to empower them um and by empower that doesn't just means like here you go free reign like there are it's I, I think of everything as like how do you build a scaffold how do you build structure and everything around you know how do you give them a process that says yes do these things in this order because yeah. we know if we do this then we're minimizing bias or we're you know accounting for these different things um i i think honestly i think the future of the sort of title and role you know researcher is more of a facilitator versus an actual sort of doer. Um, I think a lot of companies and organizations, you know, are hiring researchers to help guide people and guide teams through the process of doing research. Because what I've realized is that the way the process typically works is that you have a researcher on a team and somebody else on the team says, hey, we have these questions or we want you to go investigate, you know, these three things. So they tell you to go do a thing and then you, as the researcher, make your plan and then you go execute it and then you analyze the results and you come back and you say, here's what I've learned. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of potential noise and loss in the very first and very last step where somebody says, we want you to go do this thing and you think you know what they're asking for, but sometimes you don't or sometimes mm -hmm. you're wrong. So mm -hmm. the research you go out and do doesn't actually answer the questions they have. Um, at the same time, if you go out and do the research, then you have to like analyze and synthesize and present your results. And there's mm. also like there's an opportunity for a communication breakdown there. So when I think about democratization of research, I look at those two you know, potential breakdowns and say, well, instead of there being this walled garden around research, we can cut out that first and last step by bringing people through the process and through this journey themselves, such mm -hmm. that sure, we'll still put together a summary and analysis and all that, but I don't have to communicate to my team, here's what we learned, because they were part of the process. They saw it firsthand. Um, I think that's a big part of why, you know, I'm really interested in the ops side of research. I think that's a big part of why, the, I think the future of our role as researchers is going to shift more towards how do we how do we operationalize research how do we get more people involved in the process um, yeah I think that's and it's something that I didn't I don't think I consciously thought of at first mm -hmm. um, but it is a lot of like a lot of what my career has been is that okay cool how do we get people to do this how do we get people to be involved how do we you know I, I talk a lot of you know because I'm interviewing right now I talk a lot about these viewing parties that I do where you know you record all of your sessions right and you go back and you annotate and you whatever but you know there's something different in somebody reading a report versus watching you know five ten clips of users struggling with you know whatever thing so mm -hmm. i have you know started this practice of putting together these viewing parties where you schedule a one hour meeting like during the work day and you invite you know stakeholders and whatnot you, you know, like you can get snacks in, you like, you know, popcorn, whatever, you make it this sort of fun thing. 
but what you're doing essentially is that you're saying like here's three themes we're going to explore and i have edited together you know basically a super cut of a handful of users saying the same thing or having the same usability Mm -hmm. problem or whatever it may be and you watch it together so that they are they're not just seeing one video because in one hour you can watch one session yeah right versus like oh here's 10 people struggling with this thing here's 10 people struggling with this thing and it yeah. also gives you time to discuss afterwards so you show like okay cool we're going to spend 10 minutes we're going to watch these clips and then we're going to have you know a 5 or 10 minute discussion because mm. it gets you to like everyone sort of talks about what did you see what did you think like it's it's good to have that shared experience but it also mm. sort of is training people on how to observe you know, how to observe and how to sort of gain insights from what they're yeah. seeing. That was going to be my next question was, um, <laughs> you know, if we're, if we're also all about rigor, how do we, um, because the act of, of synthesis, the act of, of understanding what it is that you're seeing is, is where the rigor comes in. How do you, how do you help people to, to understand that what they're doing is not just observing, but actually applying a conceptual framework to what they're seeing yeah for me i mean we can talk about you know open versus uh was it continuous versus uh like the different types of coding right whether it's you know uh there's a bunch of different i guess models yeah, you can ways of doing that analysis yep yeah, yeah yeah for me what i the simplest version that i start with is that uh I, you know, sort of lay out the difference between an observation and an insight because you can observe something you can say, you know, oh, they, you know, clicked on the wrong button. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really tell us anything though. Like, okay, yeah. they clicked the wrong button, but why? Yeah. So in order to, for something to be some sort of insight that you can make a decision based on, you can action on that mm-hmm. insight, you need to have an, an observation and some sort of rationale. Yeah. Uh, so, Do you have any, um, any you know tricks that you might use to help people with that like five whys or you know is is there anything that you sort of suggest that they do uh it depends yeah it depends on the context i mean if you are if this is something that you're doing purely observational and you're not actually interacting with the the participants um it's a little bit more difficult you kind of have to do some you know some of that like five whys root cause Mm -hmm. analysis like it's a little bit more hypothetical. Um, if you are in session with somebody and you see that they did something, you can obviously sort of go back and say, you know, why did you do that thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you always have to take their response with some grain of salt because mm. people are really bad at being like, ah, oh, yes, I did this because of this. <laughs> we make up reasons all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, and it's, it's, the hardest thing to teach in my experience Mm -hmm. you know when people ask me like oh what's the hardest thing about being a researcher my response is that you have to have like you need to develop this ability to look at you know people doing a bunch of things and people saying a bunch of things and see through to what they're actually trying to do what they're actually asking for Mm -hmm. somebody says like oh i don't i don't like where you know the color of that button like they don't actually care about the color Mm. there's something else there mm. right probably like oh why do i have to click this stupid button why doesn't it just do it for me yeah you know that that's the part that i think is the most difficult um mm. and i 
I don't think I have a good, I haven't found something that like really works for everyone in terms of how to teach that skill. I think it's something that you just sort of, you know, you learn from watching other researchers, you learn from, and this is why I encourage, you know, any of my more junior team members, I'm like, sit in on my sessions. Like if I'm conducting a session, watch the video, like shadow, you know, that's, I think that's a, that's really how you start to develop these skills. So if we've got, you know, people who do research or PWDRs as Kate calls them, um, doing research and um, we're trying to bring them on the journey and their research is becoming democratized. What what do you think the risks are? Like, what's the worst that can happen? (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, this is a debate I have often with Tomer Sharon, who's at uh, Goldman Sachs now. Because Tomer, Tomer's always a person that has said, bad research is better than no research. And I'm on the fence about that. Yeah. Um, because you, you can sort of be led down, you know, the wrong path and you can make some decisions based on research, mm-hmm. but you've introduced a bunch of bias. You're asking leading questions. You didn't control for your sample. Like there's a bunch of different, and this is something that I ran into a lot at SoulCycle where we would send out a survey to 10,000 writers, we would get, you know, 3000 responses, Mm -hmm. but a quarter of those responses would come from the top 5% in terms of ridership. So you're getting a very heavily skewed sample based on, so what I was trying to get them to do is like, well, let's, instead of sending it out to a random sample of writers, let's send it out to a representative sample. Uh send it out to 5% of the top 5%, not, you know, across the board. So I, I think there's, if you're, if you don't have, you know, one, somebody on hand that knows how to do this type of work and has the experience, mm-hmm. uh, but two, the processes and the tools and whatnot set up, um, I think it's really, it's really risky to, there's, I think there's two big risks. One is that you just do bad research and then you have yeah. bad data and then you're making decisions on it. Yeah. I think also politically you can you can sort of burn some social capital at an organization mm-hmm. if you're you know doing research and it's not driving results. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of I think that's it's a struggle that I've seen I've had to face in my career. I've you know have a handful of other colleagues, mentees, you know, people that have expressed that frustration where you know, they're like, oh, I have to, I just have to argue that, you know, research is important all the time. Like, mm. Yeah. Unless you, until you get to a point where you've proven it out to your organization, you do have to sort of make that argument. Um, yeah. Bad research is not going to help. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that yesterday, actually. Um, I found myself writing the other day, um, just some kind of, I can't remember, it was a, it was a paragraph somewhere. And I realized that because I've always sat on the fence and I realized that what I was writing was that bad research was better than no research. And I thought, Oh, I didn't write those words, but, but that was the implication in what I'd written. And I thought, Oh, that's an, that's interesting that I've uncovered that underneath myself there. Um, I'm interested in a couple of things there. One is um, what I was thinking about yesterday was about measuring impact. And it's something that the research ops community talk about a lot. And I'm, so there's two things I would like to discuss there. One is, you know, let's talk about ops. Like, how does how does this all fit? And 
clearly you can see um, from our conversation, research ops is a lot about frameworks for you. That's your passion. Um, and you know, there's a lot to ops. So I think it's good to have a, a passion and a specialization. You know, my specialization and passion is, is libraries and that's, that's good. The two of us go well together. <laughs> um, so yeah, what, how does, how does ops fit into that? I mean, obviously what I was thinking about was about measuring impact, but, um, let's think about ops, the discipline. <laughs> what do you reckon? Yeah, I, well, I think to address the, the impact question, uh, so I've, I've had people ask me that a lot, like what's the ROI of research and mm -hmm. after, you know, face palming initially, the <laughs> sort of think about, and they're like, so they, they how do you measure? How do you, uh, and especially being in management roles and you know, more ops focused roles are like, how do you know that the things you're doing are actually helping? Yeah. And for me, there's sort of two things, you know, if we want to talk about metrics and what you measure, I think you measure things internally and externally. So internally, you're looking at how efficient are your people being, right? How much time are they saving? How much time are they spending on these different activities? And can you... The researchers, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Researchers. Um, so can you, you know, if we start using this tool, is it going to save us, you know, X hours a week? If we use the same, you know, NDA form, is that going to save us time? Is that going to, you know, how much time do we spend on these activities now? Cool. How do we start to operationalize that to make us more efficient? Because the more efficient we are, the more research we can actually do and the more you know, results we can, uh, we can drive from a product, you know, outcome standpoint. I think those things are interesting to measure. I think it's really interesting to measure um, how much sort of, how many iterations your team has to go through when they're developing mm -hmm. a product. That to me is a sign that you don't have the research that you're looking for upfront. Mm -hmm. So if you can you know, look at a process and say, okay, yeah, it usually takes us you know, six cycles wherever to get something out the door. Mm -hmm. If we do a little bit of research, we can get that down to three. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think you can like actually do some dollars to you know calculations of we're saving this much time we're saving this much effort mm -hmm. and, and then obviously on the external side you're just looking at pro whatever your kpi okr whatever your organization uses the things that you care about mm -hmm. is you know re the products that you're doing research on are you seeing the increase in those numbers are you seeing i, I actually have recently uh, and this is not necessarily ops related but it is sort of on the measuring topic, I've adapted sort of a framework from more of a product management standpoint that there are essentially four like major business metrics that you can influence, right? So there's uh, acquisition, you know, how good at you are at getting people to sign up for your thing, try your product, whatever. There's retention. Once they sign up, you know, do you keep them? Do they re-up? Uh, there's cost to serve, which is, you know, how efficient are you and your people being at providing the service or the product that you do. Uh, and then there's what sort of I call outreach, which is marketing and basically how do people discover your product or service and, you know, come to use it. So any, like now at this point in my career, anytime I do any research activity, I like make the team say like, it's gotta, it's gotta be one of these four things, right? Okay. Is it, what are we trying to do with this? Like if we do this research, what decisions will we make? And how will those decisions impact, you know, one of these four core metrics? Because if if it's not going to lead us to one of these four things, we should maybe reconsider 
if we want if we want to spend the resource to do this you know do the work that we need to do so i think that's that's my approach to metrics and measuring right well Mm -hmm. um yeah and from an opposite point yeah just as a sort of a final thing because we're we're sort of coming up to our time let's talk about ops um then you sort of um suggested then I heard you talk about ops as um, as a role that that managers do, and so how does ops fit into the research kind of frame? Do you think? So, yeah, I mean, I I think I think a lot of us in this community are on the same page that research ops, like it is what you do to enable people to do research, right? So it is it's setting up processes, it's it's getting. You know, it's building a participant pool. It's all these things that when I, I at a previous agency, because we were spinning up a usability lab. So I was like, cool, I'm going to write a checklist of how to do research so that when we're out, like trying to pitch and sell this thing, we can basically hand this to whoever we're talking to and say, you need to do all these things. Yeah. And it's like a 40 something item list. Okay. Like, oh, yeah, you need to secure a location. You need to have equipment. You need to recruit your participants you need to like all the things that go into doing research Mm -hmm. and that's not even like doing the actual research yeah right here are the things you need to do to get this process all set up and ready to go Mm -hmm. and then you can actually do the research and then you can do all the analysis like yeah i think that like so much of that work is what operations is and it's Mm -hmm. why you know it's i I was talking about this in an interview recently you know I, i sort of thought about it over the holidays and i was like why do I care about operations so much? Mm. Like, why do I care about research so much? And I care about research because it's, it's a way to de-risk assumptions. It's a way to, you know, not have to redo work over and over again, because that's really frustrating. Um, and it's ultimately a way to sort of save time, right? It's okay. about making people more efficient with their time and something, something, human capital, blah, 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 mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, that's why I like research. And then I thought, well, why do I like ops? And it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So ops is like, how do you make people more efficient? How do you take the drudgery out of doing the research work? Because right. the number of times I've had to like write a consent form, I just don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to have to mm-hmm. like go out and, oh, we're doing a new study. We got to recruit a bunch of like even writing screeners. Like, unless mm-hmm. you have something really specific you're screening for, that's, that the, they should be pretty much we've been doing this long enough collectively that it's kind of crazy that people are rebuilding the wheel and and every time from scratch every time I've, I've had to write so many, you know, here's our research plan. And it's just like, ah, why? Okay. How about, um, opposite strategy? Uh, a strategy in terms of product strategy. Can you clarify? How does, how do if you bring it up a level um mm-hmm. how do ops leaders lead oh sure. as opposed to research leaders i mean it's it's it sort of goes back to that internal versus external focus right mm-hmm. so when i when i think about my role as a as an ops person uh and as an ops leader i'm really i'm focused less on the product outcomes or the mm-hmm. service outcomes and like that's that's sort of a downstream effect mm-hmm. but really you know i'm talking about how are we doing the work that we do and yeah. the 
uh, the phrase that I tend to use is garbage in, garbage out. Yeah. Right. So if we're not, you know, doing good work and we're not making sure that we're efficient and it's, you know, of a caliber that we are comfortable with, mm-hmm. it's going to have downstream effects in the decisions that we make and then the products and services we produce mm-hmm. and then the experiences that our customers and our users have. Mm-hmm. So when I'm thinking about why is ops important? Why do we do it? How do we, what are the conversations we have around operations? Mm. It's really about making sure we're being as efficient and being as, you know, high caliber as we can with the resources that we have. Yeah. Um, I think that's why, you know, enabling and you know, democratizing research is really interesting because you can get people, you know, 80% of the way there if you give them all these tools and like an hour of training. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I often tell people that when I'm when I'm sort of coaching and growing uh, research talent, the first thing I teach them is how to run a session. Right. Okay. It's pretty easy to coach someone, and there's nuance and there's subtlety to it. But like conducting an interview mm-hmm. isn't really that hard. Doing the like strategy and figuring out what research method you need to pick, that's a little bit harder. Doing the mm-hmm. analysis, that's you know a little bit harder. But you can get people who do research, like teach them this thing and give them sort of guidance and scaffolding around the other parts. And Mm -hmm. you can get someone pretty far pretty quickly. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's why ops are important. And that's, those are the conversations I tend to have. They're like, why are we doing this? Well, (laughs) if you want to make our use of the time and resource we have, we should do things like this. Okay. So it's about a return on investment sort of thing for you. Mm-hmm. It's about return on investment and it's about happiness. You mm. know, if, if someone is stuck writing that same research plan over and over again, it's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone is, if they have to spend an hour editing a video because we don't have good enough, you know, software or whatever, if someone has to manually <laughs> transcribe, you know, uh, an interview session because we don't have a transcription service, like that's one, it's wasting time, but two, it's also just not, it's not an enjoyable thing for your people to yeah. be doing. Yeah. So can can we invest a little bit in efficiency, but also in you know sort yeah. of happiness? Mm. And so, what do you think? What does the ops community itself mean to you? Let's talk about let's talk about reops. Where do you um, see us going? Do you think? I I really I mean it's a conversation we've been having on the board, but mm. I really I think the more that I sort of see how things are growing and the more that I think about it, having some sort of professional organization, um, I honestly think that's the direction we should go because the more we start to churn out content, the more we start to sort of generate, um, you know, knowledge and, and, you know, things that people can leverage. Um, and we start to do events and meetups and all those mm-hmm. things. Like we, we have the trappings of any other professional organization. Mm. We just haven't, you know, the, community is only what a year and a half old at this point mm. nearly so, two yeah say so we're coming up on it'll be too soon yeah uh, now that it's january <laughs> uh, <laughs> but i yeah i think i mean I, I i still have this vision this like magical future where mm. you know their companies are using the templates that we're coming up with and the mm. sort of best practices that we're developing as the basis you know when they start to spin up these organizations and these these teams you know that's mm. as i'm interviewing that's what i keep saying it's like look this community has been here for almost two years at this point we have a lot of conversations and there's a lot of knowledge sharing and 
we're sort of we're sort of starting to settle on best practices for recruiting and for knowledge management and for like whatever it may be all the different you know the eight pillars that we have we're starting mm. to coalesce around what we think are good ideas and what are maybe less good ideas but mm -hmm. there are very few organizations that have had the opportunity to apply all of them yeah. because you know you you are sort of working on legacy and you're sort of trying to build this this organization around the rest of your your company and whatnot and i like what i'm looking to do professionally is find uh an organization that is starting from scratch so i can say cool let's put this thesis to the test oh um, so like putting ops in first before research that is 100 percent what i want to do i want yeah. to we want to see one of those <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I think it'd be great for the community. I think it'd be great for whatever organization is sort of getting the like fresh off, you know, hot off the press, um, you know, the the most up to date and most recent thinking on sort of what is research and what is ops. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, I think that's once we once we have a few more case studies as a community under our belt of like here are things that we think your places where we've applied them and here's the outcome yeah um that's really gonna that's gonna help us out a lot and i think it's gonna help obviously the organizations that are represented in our community yeah. um but i i would love to i would love to have a global like annual research ops you know event where we all come together and do a thing right i would love yeah. to have a professional organization that we can point to someone put it on your resume and say i'm a part of this you know yeah. i put at, UXPA. I'm like, I'm a UXPA member. That's cool. Yeah. Like I can't say I'm a reops member because I mean, I do say it, mm. Yeah. but <laughs> it doesn't have, you know, the gravity or whatever that, mm. you know, having this thing that you're a member of and mm. produce, you know, this organization that produces content and produces events and yeah. does all this stuff. Like I, I think that's the future for us. Mm. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for a, a lovely interview. Um, I think it was uh, really interesting to hear about um, the democratization of research and the application of rigor and the way in which your other passions can sort of be brought to the table and what that means for the future of research and for future of research ops. Um, in particular, it strikes me that um, we in the community are in a sense, kind of creating a future for ourselves. Um, and so it's it's fascinating to know the people who are there doing that creation. And as a researcher to sort of uh, document that as we go, I think it's, um, yeah, it's gonna be fascinating. So I think I, I just wrote down a little thing that it's about happiness and that's what you said um, before and that really sort of struck a chord with me. Mm. Uh, so thank you for your time, Brad, and um, yep. I'll catch you on the board. <laughs> yeah, go. Uh, I guess you're just starting your day, so. Yeah, go have some breakfast. <laughs> yeah, go have some breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Brad. See you yeah. later. Bye. See you. And that's the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more, please subscribe or join us in the Research Ops community. If there's someone you'd like us to talk to, please drop us a line at teamreops at gmail.com. 
Our next show is a conversation with Roy Opata Olande. Roy runs the research operations practice at Zapier, helping the teammates across the globe learn customer insights more efficiently and effectively. Prior to this role, he led the UX research practice at Buffer. When not working or hanging out with his wife and three young boys, he can be found obsessing over football, soccer. Roy hails from Kenya and currently resides just outside of Toronto, Canada. It's a great conversation covering how Roy got started in ops, why, and how he's tackled the challenge of building the practice from scratch within Zapier. I hope you'll join us next time. Thanks. Bye.